So far, a lot of talk has been about presidents, premiers, and generals. What was life like for ordinary Chinese during this warlord era? In short, terrible. First of all, all these soldiers and commanders needed lodging, food, supplies, and pay. As we heard with Wu Peifu's army in Hunan, pay was often late. Sometimes it wouldn't come at all. Then soldiers would pillage instead. I'm not speaking about Wu's troops in particular. He was considered one of the best generals. Most of the other warlords were poorly educated, often illiterate, and keen on extracting as much wealth as possible. One way they did that, of course, was through taxes. If they controlled a territory as military and civilian governor, then they could control the usual tax system. They usually supplemented that with additional taxes on everything, from opium to vegetables. They would charge tolls for goods traveling through their area. They could also earn from businesses operating in their area. The warlord of Shanxi, for instance, did well with coal mining in his province. In Guangxi, the warlords gained revenue from a toll on goods like opium traveling through the province. Their province was between the opium and mining areas of Yunnan and the big cities and ports of Guangdong province. These tolls helped keep taxes relatively low in Guangxi for a while and helped those leaders be more popular than otherwise until that easy cash cow stopped when the route changed. One of the problems for common people was that when a new leader moved in, whether it was at the provincial level or local level, often they would demand two to three years taxes in advance. Unfortunately, armies came and went quickly. In some cases, by the 1930s, ordinary taxpayers had prepaid taxes for 60 or 70 years, if they had the funds. If not, then whatever they had of value might have been carried off. In the bigger cities like Shanghai or Guangzhou, the warlords could also benefit from a share of revenues from vices, like prostitution. In most provinces, warlords also resorted to printing money or minting their own coins. This would only help in the very short run, as it quickly caused inflation. For example, Manchurian paper money went from being worth almost one silver dollar in 1917. By 1927, that same Manchurian dollar was worth only a tenth as much in silver. It would take 10 bills to buy the same amount of silver after those 10 years. The warlords were sure to stash their funds in Western bank accounts usually in foreign concessions, or in property in those same concessions. If they lost a war, they would often spend some time in those concessions or overseas before looking for a chance to return. Duan Chirei of the Anfu clique lost the war in 1920, but Duan will be back, too. In the villages and on the farms, ordinary folk were squeezed by everyone. Those in charge, of course, took their taxes, which increased tremendously during this period, and often had to be paid on short notice or for years in advance. 
but the wars also led to destruction of farms and businesses, and there were lots of unemployed. Many turned to banditry. Banditry was not new in China. In a country with a lot of people and not enough land, there was often surplus labor, especially outside of peak farming season. The same men might harvest a crop for a month and then form banded gangs that would raid another area for food or what they could carry. Bandits might descend on an area, which was a burden for those villagers or farmers. But often the army that would come after was even worse. They had their own demands for putting down the bandits and usually weren't that interested in actually stopping banditry since often that was their reason for a job in the first place. Bandits and armies often worked symbiotically. Armies could grow by incorporating bandits, and bandits could get weapons by exchanging them for money or food with soldiers. In one case in Manchuria, bandits took a Western doctor hostage, who later told the story. Most of them had treatable injuries, like bullet wounds, or hard growths on their eyelids. Many were addicted to opium. Some recited the Confucian classics at night around the campfire. He was asked by one for a way to emigrate. When soldiers did approach, they knew the names of each of the bandits and their home villages, which scared those bandits. But negotiations for the bandits to turn over the doctor in exchange for joining the army and getting opium, fell through. The doctor was eventually freed by soldiers, and one bandit later wrote to the doctor to let him know that the gang had broken up and that he was looking for work. In some cases, businesses or gentry might hire their own protection armies or pay protection money to a local group. There basically was no good government anywhere. And if you couldn't earn enough to live where you were, you might become a bandit or soldier yourself. Why does this matter? Not only does this help explain what happened after in China, how ordinary people were completely fed up with the situation and could be mobilized. It also is a pattern that we see today in many countries in the world. Is this much different? than what is happening in Niger right now in Africa. There, a military coup just overthrew a democratically elected government and is seeking support from the Wagner group of mercenaries from Russia. Chinese warlords spent a lot of money buying foreign weapons during the warlord era. They even hired foreigners to build them armories, build them weapons in their own territories. You can look at places like Niger, Ethiopia, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, or even the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s, and see some parallels. Can you think of cases? The Chinese warlords stashed their funds overseas in foreign bank accounts and property for a rainy day. Does any of that sound familiar today? I suppose one bright spot in all of this is that warlord periods can end. Looking back a hundred years later in China, much has changed. China is no longer a failed state. Failed states are not necessarily permanent. 
nor our civil wars. But a breakdown in order here from the end of the Qing dynasty and a failure of these warlords and leaders to put the nation ahead of their wallets and social status can be a disaster for a country. One leader replaces another and the common people just experience war, devastation, taxation, and maybe banditry and hopelessness. But that's not permanent. This too will pass. And we will soon see how. It might not be the way you think. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Chinese Revolution. Please join us again.